This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Live once again from Dragon Meat. At the not at all elliptonically named Ibis Hotel in Earl's Court, London. Depending on what you ask us, stuff we might talk about in this episode include tabletop and adventure gaming, time travel, tradecraft, cinema, occultism, and of course, food. Where we talk about murder. Right. Murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no good we get up to. And as always, Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash murder Ken and Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> Bye. Murder of crows. <laughs> and get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. <laughs> That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. Uh, so welcome, everybody, once again, to uh, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff Live in, uh, in beautiful London. And as is typical of our live episodes, what we're going to do is start off with the famous nerd trope cards, as, as lovingly handcrafted uh, by us, uh, for us by listener Caleb Tate, uh, who cannot be here today because he's busy being a good parent or something stupid like that. Uh, so uh, those of you who do not know the, uh, the rodeo here, as it were, uh, there is a nerd trope and a card trope. I will draw one from each deck, and then Ken will expound appropriately. The nerd card is... Crusades. 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 Have we done the Crusades? No, we have not. We've never done the Crusades? Oh, and the trope card is Time War. Time War. Draw a second nerd card. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) And the second nerd card is Marco Polo. Marco Polo is actually contemporaneous with the Crusades. Let's get another Time War going with Isaac Newton. Yeah! (laughs) All righty. Okay, obviously, this is almost a layup to have Isaac Newton and Time War at once. Because, of course, Isaac Newton is fundamentally dis, uh, investigating the fundamental structures of the universe. The structure of gravity, the structure of optics, the structure of alchemy, the structure of biblical chronology. The four fundamental forces that define our existence. And 
as is his habit, he sort of worked obsessively on the one, worked obsessively on the next one. So he got optics nailed down, moved on to gravity, got that one nailed down, moved on to alchemy. By the time he gets to biblical chronology, not quite as much time, not quite as much attention, a little more lab work needs to be done. He's got sort of a, a rough guess as to what it is. He writes it down in his papers, which uh, are immediately suppressed upon his death. First Who wrote is not half-assed a, an assignment or two? A biblical <laughs> chronology here and there, exactly. <laughs> but it being Isaac Newton, we know for a fact that Isaac Newton would have used every scientific method at his disposal to investigate biblical chronology, right? Would he not? Of course he would. So what is he going to do? He's going to go into the, uh, the archives of the British Crown, because of course the British Crown has been uh, going over to the Holy Land since the 1100s as part of the Crusades, bringing back various uh, medals, holy relics, pieces of the Holy Land, uh, Richard the Lionheart, obviously the classic example, but many, many other British kings uh, uh, went on crusade and came back with uh, souvenirs, possibly including arrowheads stuck in them, but uh, with, with a number of various uh, uh, holy relics and things connected to the sacred era of the Bible. And Isaac Newton would have access to those things because where would they be stored? They'd be stored in the Tower of London, right here in scenic London. And what was he? He was the director of the Royal Mint. He, up, he had a little office where he sat there with his alchemical pans and his balance sheets to make sure that all the gold that came out with the king's face on it was proper gold. And uh, in his spare time was doing his alchemical research this and that's to make to see if there was a cheaper way to make gold so that the royal finances could be uh, helped along a little bit. But he's got all of his techniques, all of his tools, all of his equipment right here at some point. And we can't say for sure when, because he's a secretive guy. He writes things down that are potentially heretical in uh, codes so that they won't be found out by the church. That's why he has to um, uh, resign his professorship because he can't uh, swear to the uh, existence of the Trinity because he's an Aryan with an I, heretic. And so he uh, has to make sure that his researches don't attract uncomfortable uh, priestly attention. So it's all on the, on the DL. It's on the down low. But at some point, Isaac Newton opens up a time gate from 1690. Let's call it 1697, because why not, to 1097. A good 600-year time gate uh, to go back into the Crusades, the establishment of the Templars, which, like I need to tell you, fraught with magical numinousness. Isaac Newton, as you may or may not recall, has been identified as one of the secretive notoniers of the Priory de Sion, one of the holders of the secret of the Crusades. He did not get it by um, uh, uh, reading the, the, the diary of Jesus or anything. He got it from time travel, a simple logical explanation there. So Isaac Newton has got his time date from 1697 to 1097. The British Crown, meanwhile, is exploring out there. They're sending the East India Company out to the east, West India Company out to the west. They're grabbing up uh, uh, ancient treasures, gems, that kind of thing, from both uh, hemispheres uh, and bringing back from those indies various powerful and puissant devices that uh, that will allow Isaac to see ever further and travel ever further backwards into time. The specie are drifting back into time because Isaac Newton's agents that are being sent back to the Crusades to acquire him even better artifacts are going out and spending the money that's being brought in from uh, overseas. That is creating a uh, investment bubble in the. Uh, 12th century AD uh, crusader states, which is explaining why the crusades are not able to ever be putting themselves on a uh, paying footing. Uh, the, the Europeans keep attempting to import feudalism into uh, the, uh, the, the Levant. They can't make it work. The reason they can't make it work is it's too cash-rich an economy. And the reason that is because Isaac Newton's researchers keep pouring money into it. So what you have now is a time war 
in which inflation is destroying the crusading kingdoms that Isaac Newton needs to keep researching in order to find out the truth about biblical chronology. So what does he do? What would you do if you're Isaac Newton? Of course, what you do is you would go back in time and tell yourself, hey, Isaac Newton, don't open up a time gate. You're going to just screw up the, all the research that I'm trying to do. But if you're Isaac Newton, you're very stubborn. You're not going to listen to that crap. So you <laughs> open up your time gate anyway. You go back in time to 1097. And now you, Isaac Newton, are back there in 1097, writing down all the secrets of the of biblical chronology, figuring out who Jesus was, working out all the sacred places. You've got your time buddies. Uh, let's call them, I don't know, Templars that hang around you at the Order of the Temple, uh, keeping Isaac Newton's men away from you. Isaac Newton in 1697, Isaac Newton uh, A, as we will call him, although Isaac Newton B is very annoyed that that doesn't take to that very well at all. Uh, he, he thinks of the conference as Isaac Newton Prime. Isaac Newton Prime. <laughs> Isaac Newton Prime uh, organizes his own body of, of men um, connected to the Order of St. John, which, if you'll recall, is right, right over there in Smithfield, so it's very handy to the Tower of London. Uh, the Templars have been driven out of England in the intervening 600 years, so Isaac Newton... Prime has to go uh, get his own bodyguards from the Order of St. John, i.e. the Hospitallers, the Knights of Malta, sends them back into the Crusades to mess with Isaac Newton A's Templars. So the Hospitallers are created by Isaac Newton in 1697, sent back in time to mess with the Templars that Isaac Newton A created in 1097 as a war between Isaac Newtons over the magical artifacts that will allow him to conclusively demonstrate whether or not his biblical chronology is correct. Now, how does the war end? I don't know. I'm not Isaac Newton. <laughs> My theory is it's still going on. So whenever you read such and such a thing in uh, archaeology, they go and they dug up some site in the Near East, and it's like, that's odd. There's a fire here where there was no invasion, and there's a, signs of an earthquake in this town, but not in all these other towns around it. That's probably Isaac Newton. So all of the original uh, uh, biblical archaeology, they say, look, we found the Temple of Solomon. And then someone else comes along and says, nope, that wasn't the Temple of Solomon. That was just a, a big uh, a place where they stored peas. And then there's a great squabble. It's both. <laughs> Isaac Newton built one, and he unbuilt the other one. So all of biblical archaeology is explained by Isaac Newton messing with Isaac Newton. <laughs> Uh, so, after the uh, nerd trope, well, a, a brief uh, digression. As a time traveler yourself, uh, we've alluded in various segments of uh, Ken's time machine to the fact that there are various opposing forces that occasionally attempt to thwart you. Um, are the Isaac Newtons one of those forces? The Isaac Newtons are either two or one of those forces, and it is the part of the argument between the Isaac Newtons as to whether or not they count as two particulate Isaac Newtons or one waveform Isaac Newton <laughs> that keeps Isaac Newton mostly out of my hair. Right, because if Isaac Newton of Newtonian physics becomes a quantum entity entirely, I think we're all screwed, right? Yeah, I, that's my understanding of the matter, but when I ask Isaac Newton, he just shouts, get out of my office! Right. So, so one day, yeah. if you see a box with a cat in it, and the cat is either alive or dead, and, you or Isaac Newton. and it's Isaac Newton, yeah. you know we've lost the plot. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. 
Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, can unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. Okay, so we've now reached the point in our live podcast where we open up the floor to questions, and we have a microphoneista for you to uh, come up to. So uh, identify yourselves, and we will uh, delegate to our microphoneista the duty of picking who gets to ask the first question. Let's not see the same hands. There you go. Uh, Come to GMing questions. Um, What do you do if the party splits up, splits in two, and the person who needs to be there and has the investigative ability to find the core clue is on the other half of the party? And what do you do if they leave a scene not realizing they've left a core clue behind? Uh, So it's a two-part question. Uh, The first uh, of those two parts is what do you do uh, in Gumshoe if the party splits up and the person who has the needed ability is in the other scene? And what you do is, uh, which is the same thing you do if that player doesn't show up that day, which is you have the player or the character who's there justify knowing what it is based on the ability of the other character. So they say, uh, well, if, uh, oh, Johnny was just telling me about this physics problem last night, and I thought I was going to die from boredom, but it turns out I need to know this in order to prevent the spaceship from spinning out of control. Or, uh, you know, oh, he's talked on and on about this archaeological puzzle so many times, I feel like I could decipher Mayan hieroglyphs myself. Why, that says, oh, I can decipher those Mayan hieroglyphs. Um, And the second part of that question is... I've forgotten. Already. Is the um, uh, I've forgotten. Uh, leave a scene. <laughs> leave it. Oh yeah, when they leave a scene with a core clue unfound. Uh, I let them do it. They'll have to come back. Right. Could and you? that and that is actually what I would add to your answer to the first part is, unless it is a super time sensitive, the spaceship is spiraling into the sun type situation where they have to solve it to really allow the story to continue at all. I would just say. Maybe you recognize that those hieroglyphs are the type of things that Johnny could solve. And if it's NBA, you take a picture with your phone, and then Johnny solves them later. And the fact that Johnny solves them later, and it's like, 
oh, you really should have read that out loud if you wanted to get the, 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 the all-seeing eye of Agamotto. I guess we have to go back in at night. Oh, I don't want to go back in at night. And so you make the solution, make the story more interesting, the fact that they had to delay. And you, you don't want to punish them necessarily for splitting up the party because that adds tension and other things. But I think that as long as it isn't a breaks the scenario now not to know it, recognizing that it's something that the other character can know counts and you can move on and then they can either solve it in the in the intermediate downtime when they're all talking about what they found out. Oh, you saw that uh, bizarre uh, color on the floor. That means it was a chemical spill and that someone was messing around with uh, sulfuric acid. Or they're like, well, I hope you kept a sample. Well, of course I did. You know, and, and however it is, you can work those people back into the story during the the big um, uh, everyone meets up again. Uh, and if it's an absolutely certain, you know, oh my God, we're going to die, then yeah, what Robin says, it's like, oh, thank God I stayed awake and listened to that physics problem long enough. Um, while running uh, playtest demos of Gumshoe 1 to 1, which is the upcoming uh, refit uh, of Gumshoe to uh, one GM, one player, uh, the structure of adventure. Uh, investigative role playing becomes uh, clearer because you don't have all the sort of crosstalk and uh, planning and stuff. And you realize that in mystery stories, the investigators go back to witnesses repeatedly as a matter of course. That's just a standard thing uh, where the first time they go and get a little bit of information and don't find out what's really going on, and then later they find out uh, something somewhere else and they go back to them. Or, you know, the classic Columbo. Uh, one more thing, it doesn't occur necessarily at, at the end of the scene, but it might occur, oh, wait a minute, I didn't ask, uh, you know, Pelly about this uh, uh, particular uh, laundry where he gets his uh, fascist organization silver shirts laundered. That might be, I, I bet that means something. I'll go back and ask him again. And then you can have, you know, by play around that where, you know, the What are you doing here, Rex? I already told you everything. Exactly. You didn't tell me about the laundry. Oh, man, don't tell me what's wrong with the laundry. Yeah. And it becomes, it becomes a way to deepen character and, and deepen uh, the interaction with the NPC. Next questioner, please approach the microphone. Uh, is there any segment of the global economic marketplace that has not been disrupted by Eisenhower? Oh, so I see got the touch uh, backs again. Dragon Meat loves callbacks. They do. Uh, they so, so the question is, is there a part of the global economy that has not been affected by the Isaac Newton time war? Well, I mean, there's obviously uh, North Korea. Not affected by anything. Um, and oddly enough, the economy of Israel is pretty much immune to it because Isaac Newton is sort of uh, before and after, right? He's... You know, going back and forth in Israel, just sitting there going, well, yeah, whatever. All of the archaeological activity that he is generating creates the tourism yeah. that uh, is a fundament of the Israeli economy. So and, and again, um, a gold-based inflationary boom is going to tap out once you start having a fundamentally fiat currency. So really anything after the 19th century is sort of, well, yeah, Isaac Newton is an effect, and you have to keep it in mind if you're the Treasury Secretary or whatever, the Chancellor, but, you know, most of the time now. Right. Well, that's why we had to introduce quantum mechanics, yeah. is to go, you know, form a barrier against Newtonian interference. As so, yeah. So basically, uh, you know, when uh, quantum mechanics become apparent is, in fact, uh, a, a great uh, working to uh, prevent uh, Newtonian time effects from uh, splashing onto us. So uh, he can, you know alter history and then re-alter it back. Uh, and, you know, you have to give him points for neatness, uh, yeah. like Ken. He is very neat. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he doesn't leave a lot of weird paradoxes and stuff behind. So we don't notice, you know, the latest things that he has yeah. done to change our conception of 90%, 90% right. of it is just 
under and, the radar. And most people don't know history anyway. And and Ken just has his uh, perceptions reoriented. And uh, are you, now, presumably, as a time traveler, you're not immune from that effect. You have to go back into Time Incorporated, and they have the yeah, you have to get your the shots. flow charts. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. It's all the briefing document. Uh, next question. Can we expect any supplements uh, campaigns for Feng Shui 2? Uh, the question is, uh, is there going to be uh, a campaign or other support for uh, Feng Shui 2? Uh, there are no current plans to do additional support material. Uh, the uh, reason for that is basically the economics of source books have really changed since the uh, 90s when Feng Shui first came out and it was considered uh, uh, important and necessary for marketing reasons to create a long stream of uh, supplements. That was sort of the heyday white wolf, and that was their uh, model uh, on a much bigger level than Feng Shui ever had. Uh, and the idea was that you would had to continually remind retailers that your role-playing game existed so that they would uh, not only order the supplement, but they would reorder your core book. And you sort of had a goal of wanting a chunk of shelf space. Uh, shelf spaces uh, and face-to-face uh, -face retail is no longer as big a factor as it used to be, although uh, we are seeing sort of a resurgence of, you know, really great retailers who've survived, you know, countless uh, extinction events. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, supplements have never really sold as well as core books for obvious reasons. Uh, players <coughs> buy core books, they don't buy uh, supplements mostly. And particularly in the case of Feng Shui, even the original supplements, they're sort of struggling to justify themselves because really, uh, feng Shui is all you need to play as much Feng Shui as you uh, could possibly play. And the new edition is even more so because uh, the, the way, for example, that foes are statted, you, the idea of, an, of a Feng Shui foe book is uh, rendered completely nugatory. You just use the system in the book and then chrome them as you wish to chrome them. So uh, I think some people still sort of expect source books because they were trained to think, oh, a game is dead if there aren't source books for it. But of course, a game is only dead when people stop playing it. Um, and I think Atlas uh, has been successful in getting uh, Feng Shui back into stores. It's doing very well even after the Kickstarter. Uh, if John thought that there were uh, you know, enough people who would buy supplements that it would justify the work involved in doing them, uh, he would do that in, in a minute. But there's uh, no current... Uh, commercial need for it, and, and I would argue no great uh, creative need for it either, because, you know, other than sort of those 1,500-word location blocks where it lists all the cool things that can happen in a fight, which, again, is something that any Feng Shui GM can make up on the fly, really, uh, there's, there's really not a, a, a hole that has been left to, to mess with. And there's certainly more cool stuff that came out of the Kickstarter than we had uh, for, for Feng Shui in a lot of ways. Uh, next question. All right, let's get you talking about something you really care about, which is food. Um, I looked at the two of you in the canteen today. You were eating a pie, which looked a very British pie, slightly disgusting. So let's do the uh, travel advisory food section. What's good to eat in England? Please do not tell us that it's all the foreign stuff. I mean, I'll start, right, with uh, the fact that uh, on Thursday night, I went to St. John Smithfield 
which is, I don't know how many of you guys know it, it was one of the pioneers of what they call nose-to-tail cuisine, which means that you eat all the animal, potentially. Uh, it's not quite that. You don't show up and they say, here's your ox, get going. Um, but they, a, lot of the, a, a lot of the cuisine is, is various forms of offal, right? So you'll, you'll get liver, or you'll get intestines, or you'll get tripe, or whatever it happens to be. And in my particular case, I got roasted bone marrow, which is, oh my God, it's the greatest thing in the world. You put just a tiny little amount of sea salt in it, and you're basically done. Your whole, all the taste buds in your mouth are busy. They've all got stuff going on now. And I had a saddle of hair. I had not known that hairs were big enough that you could actually have a cut of hair. I thought pretty much you're eating a hair or you're not. But now this was the saddle, which apparently is the tenderest, most delightful part of the hair, along with a, uh, a bacon-infused, uh, and it looked like it had maybe beet in it, cabbage, that was on the side that tasted nothing like cabbage or beet. And it tasted sort of like a uh, bacony vegetable, if you will, the vegetable bacon. Uh, along with a super good uh, French uh, uh, wine, a red wine that I was not familiar with the varietal at the time, Carignan, I think is what it was. And it was uh, very, very uh, uh, game forward. It, it really worked with the wild game. So I'll tell you, uh, that is the, uh, there, there's a line in one of the James Bond books where he's at Blades and he's sitting there eating uh, with his boss and, uh, because he can't afford it on his actual salary. It's one of the things that happens in the books is that James Bond has to sort of make do with omelets all the damn time. But when he's, you know, when he's on expense accounts, he eats like a pig. So he goes to Blades. So it's with sort of like being a game freelancer. Exactly. Really. Very much like being a game freelancer. There's a lot of... James Bond and I have a lot in common. And when I'm played by Sean Connery, I'm much more interesting. Um, but there's a thing where he's eating the thing, and there's a line where Fleming says uh, that the English cookery, when done well, is the best cookery in the world. And of course, as an American, you just laugh and laugh and laugh. But there is something to the notion that roast meat done in the standard way that, that English cooks were doing it in medieval times, really, and then brought forward with uh, the foreign kickshaws like uh, herbs and flavor. It's super good. And so uh, anywhere you can go that's got a good uh, joint or a roast, I would say knock yourself out. Robin? Um, I, I'm not sure that I have a huge recommendation at this point because the, well, the, the useless recommendation for everyone other than Ken and I is uh, have Simon uh, cook for you. Yeah, make, make uh, ox cheek stew because that turns out to be really good. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, we haven't had our restaurant extravaganza. You, you, you arrived earlier and got yeah. a, a non-standard <laughs> off the uh, usual schedule restaurant extravaganza. I, uh, it was to, uh, James Wallace uh, hi uh, hired me to do uh, a mini game in the back of Las Vegas, which he had kickstarted some time ago and is eventually going to come out. But uh, when he said, What should I pay you for the mini game? I did not say, Pay me money like a chump. I said, You may pay me by taking me out for a really good meal next time I'm in London. And I made sure to have that day free and to tell right. James to have that day free. And, and how many words was this? It, um, on a per word basis, James actually did, did, he did all right. He, he, he got. So, um, so, how many words did you write? Like twenty five hundred. Okay, well, three thousand, something like that. I, I totally got ripped off because I just took money for my words, like a chump, <laughs> like a chump. I didn't realize that was an arrangement. Can be. I will know in the future. Don't never sign the never sign the boilerplate. Always, right. always drill. There you go. Uh, next question. <laughs> we'll we'll work for food bought by James Wallace. We'll not necessarily work for food, food, food. Yeah, if you're just going to give us a couple of parsnips, we're just going to yeah. you know, give you or a, some crappy warmed over D20 mechanic lock. That's right. Yeah. Here's your gnome. <laughs> yeah. He's the parsnip gnome. Yeah. He, he can't attack you. He's just sort of a bummer who drones on about He sort of sits there and wishes he was yeah. a carrot. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hey Ken, what happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fa fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. I was going to ask, uh, if you've got an idea for a role-playing game, what's the best way you think to get it out there to the people and get it into a book form or online or how do you do that? So the question is, you have a great idea for a role-playing game, how do you get it to the swirling masses who would love your game? Uh, and, well, the first thing is, uh, an idea for a role-playing game, like an idea for anything, uh, is worthless. What is worth uh, something is the effort and skill that you take to assemble it into something that uh, people can actually use. So if you have an idea, the first piece of advice is follow through on that idea and turn it into a game. Uh, and then start taking that game around to conventions and play it for people and d demo it and get an idea of what works about it and what people find appealing and how to sharpen it. And uh, then uh, these days you're probably better off self-publishing in some sort of format, the uh, idea that there are game companies that are waiting for people to pitch them ideas for new standalone role-playing uh, products has sort of gone by the, the wayside, not that there ever necessarily was a huge space for that. <laughs> there was never any traffic on the road, but the road has been torn up and replaced by a meadow. So Right. Yeah. So uh, what else would you say, Ken? I would say uh, look at your idea and, and ask, Are you is it an idea for a game qua game, or is it an idea for a setting or a place or a kind of play? Because if it's B, see if you can do that expression in a game system that people already play, like Fate or Savage Worlds. If you find something, because virtually all, Gumshoe, Gumshoe, virtually all of the systems that people play now are open, one, that, one degree or another, or can be made so with a little creative finagling. So if you wanted to play a D&D style game, D&D uh, is out there. D20 is open and all of the retro clones uh, have their own little cunning ways around it. You can do the same sort of thing with that. BRP is open via the Mon Mongoose SRD. Gumshoe is open. Fate is open. Savage Worlds isn't open, but Shane is a really nice guy, and you can probably talk him into it. So I would say start with the, with the question of am I selling a world, or am I selling a game, or am I selling something that is like powered by the apocalypse, but with one or two changes? Because, again, maybe that's what you can do, is, is it's still a game, but it's a game that again, you can lean on a pre-existing system. And what you get with that, first of all, is you get uh, professional game designers helped you with your game. Second of all, you get the opportunity to put it in from an audience that is already interested in, in your game, which is not the case if you just come up soup to nuts, here is my new game, Bob's Game RPG, 
it's Bob's game for fate, and then all the fate players are like, well, I'm interested, Bob, tell me about your game. And then you say, well, it's about Isaac Newton fighting a time war with himself. And everyone's like, wow! Oh, you saw that from Ken! Yeah, that's true. So don't do that. But, um, but, you, but you can use uh, the pre-existing design base and the pre-existing customer base to move your game forward in uh, estimation. What Robin says is correct, you should self-publish. Uh, almost, you're almost really going to have to one way or the other, so you might as well just admit it right up front. Sweat equity or uh, hire a really good layout guy so your game doesn't look like ass, so that it stands out when people are looking at all this stuff that's available on DriveThru. Um, and then uh, demo, demo, demo. Go to uh, uh, Games on Demand at Origins and Gen Con. Go to any conventions in your local area and play it. Get it out there. Get people talking about it on the internet. And the way to get people talking about games that they've had fun playing is for them to play them and have fun. So, And another thing to do is before you get very far into turning your idea into a game, see if you can distill it into a 25 or word less pitch at a booth at a convention where you are either trying to sell your finished game or even just convince somebody to play your game at your table instead of playing the familiar game over at the next table with the great GM. Uh, and a convenient way of uh, arranging that pitch is around uh, a core activity. So uh, uh, the formula for that is you are X who do Y. So you are time refurbishers who attempt to undo the work of temporal manipulators, for example, which is t time watch. Right. right. Or you know you are <coughs> contemporary, well-trained agents going uh, fighting the occult, which is exoterrorists. And if you don't ha can't express your idea in that form, chances are. It is either so brilliantly innovative that it will change role-playing forever, uh, i.e., that's not going to happen, uh, or really that your idea is not clear enough. Because if your answer to yourself is, well, in this game, you can do anything, your idea is terrible, don't do it. <laughs> uh, another food question. Um, I understand the guys behind Shadows of Astron are producing a cookbook to guide to go with their game. If you were employed to write a, a cookery supplement to any of the games you've produced, which ones would you go for? Where, where would the nicest food be? So, so the question is, what uh, game product that we have worked on would we do a food supplement for? Well, since I've worked on The Dying Earth, and there is no more foodomaniacal setting uh, than anything I've written or described by Jack Vance. Uh, in fact, the one time I sp spoke to him on the phone, and the idea was uh, to solicit his input on uh, the setting and, and what uh, I needed to know in order to design the game, except I thought, I kind of have figured out what he's up to here. I don't really have a lot of detailed questions. I realize that when he just tells you, you know, you're attacked by a giant hoon, that he doesn't have a 3,000-word uh, document about hoons that he has been hiding, that that's all there is, and it's the, that's part of the joke. So I didn't actually have that many uh, things to talk about, so in, and I didn't want to waste too much of his time, and so I wanted to get off the line, but he wanted to chat, so we wound up uh, talking about one of his favorite food books, uh, The Man Who Ate Everything by Jeffrey Steingarten. So uh, in, in tribute to Jack Vance and his love of food and his uh, great descriptions of food, uh, I would do a Dying Earth cookbook. I think it would be fun to do a, um, uh, a cookbook that would be tied into uh, the Dracula dossier, Knights Black Agents. Um, uh, beginning, of course, with the, the meals that uh, Jonathan Harker eats as he goes deeper into Transylvania. He sits there and he gives the recipes. So your, your, your opener right there is great because you've got that section of the book where you've got the, the paprika chicken with the golden mediash wine. And then you could start playing around with it. So you could say, well, here's you know, traditional Wallachian cuisine. You have a bunch of different recipes 
that involve blood pudding or blood sausage. You can ha you can have fun with it thematically. It'll be an area of cookery that I don't think a lot of people know a lot about Romanian cookery and Hungarian cookery even is not super well known. And I think that'd be fun to investigate. And then if you got bored, you'd just say, all right, what uh, uh, Seven Golden Vampires uh, does Peter Cushing eat in that movie? Is there a thing we can maybe bring about? Uh, in all of the damn movies, Dracula is always serving chicken, which is weird, right? It, and, uh, so maybe, you know, in honor of, of Dracula, there's like, here's the, here's the Todd Browning chicken, here's the Terrence Fisher chicken, here's the Francis Ford Coppola chicken. I'm surprised that I can explain something to you about vampires. Yeah. Uh, but humans are red meat, and you've got to cut down in your consumption of red meat. So <laughs> when he's serving something else, it's chicken. Right. I see. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, next question. Uh, so I noticed earlier your um, almost offhand dismissal of the idea of, of, of the gnome. Um, and I think there is a consensus. This is like, the gnome dismissal bureau. Yeah, so there is a consensus, I think, in the, in the RPG world that gnomes are stupid and terrible. Um, so my question is, how do you make a gnome... Like, you receive a brief that says, here's your game, there must be gnomes in it. Um, and they must be in some way obviously different from dwarves and halflings. How do you create an interesting gnome? Okay, so the question is, how do you create an interesting gnome uh, that's different than dwarves and halflings? And of course, that's the problem with the gnome, is that anything cool you can think up about a gnome would be better served either by a dwarf or a halfling. Uh, so the obvious answer, I would say, is that gnomes are the inexpressible, awful, ineffable hybrids of dwarves and halflings. They're, they're what happens they're, uh, when, uh, and neither of them really likes to admit it, uh, just like, you know, Homo sapiens and uh, Neanderthals were both embarrassed about certain things that happened uh, at certain bottleneck periods in our genetic history. Uh, that, uh, and that's the big secret. You can't, you can't admit it. So the, the gnomes are, are uh, sterile. They have a bad attitude. They're uh, considered the other in two societies. And uh, they are... They're made uh, to live in the law. <coughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I would take the fact that the gnome... And again, this has got to have been just because Gygax looks at all the things that he's added pluses to. He's like, well, I guess gnomes can be illusionists. <laughs> but I would run with that. I would say, all right, gnomes are illusionists. Why are they illusionists? That's not a dwarf thing. That's not a hobbit thing. It's, it's an illusionist. All right. Are gnomes illusionists or are they illusions? Are gnomes tulpas? Are gnomes like little seed pods of other organic that start to pop into the universe once things get a little too crazy, once the magicians have broken down barriers and had owlbears and beholders rampaging around, then suddenly you get gnomes, like gremlins versus, and herpes together, right? <laughs> and so they start showing up, and their first illusion is to make people think, oh yeah, there was always gnomes. They, they've been around forever, and then the gnomes start illusioning other stuff, and they're like, Okay, uh, gnomes are helpful to bring along because uh, giants fear them or whatever. And so gnomes just start showing up and you're like going through your bag and there's a gnome in there. It's like, did I pack a gnome? <laughs> Roll wisdom. Yes, you packed a gnome. Why? Um, because it can hear things. All right. Gnomes can hear things. Great. And so the gnomes just sort of like insert themselves into the story and just show up in the corners of it. And suddenly you're like, well, I'm glad that me and Ralgar and our nine gnomes are here looting the... That's a lot of gnomes. I would have the gnomes be basically an opportunistic infection of the world. I think that's fun. And then you add the illusion so that you're never sure if you've gotten rid of them or not. 
And, and one of the persistent rumors, of, of course, is that gnomes, who are noted illusionists, are actually just regular hype people who are making themselves look tiny just to mess with people. Yeah, that's one of the things that they do. They're actually standing very far away. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's all the magic of force perspective. Yeah. It's, it's not an illusion at all. <laughs> it's just post-Renaissance art of yep. 101. Hi, uh, I have a bit of a rant I heard a couple of weeks ago in a podcast, not yours, but somewhere else. Uh, yes, you wouldn't have heard a rant on our podcast. <laughs> no, nothing but well-founded reason. The problem with big games these days including yours and Dungeons and & Dragons and stuff like that, they have hundreds of pages dedicated to rules. And this becomes very inaccessible for people who just want to start a game from scratch, like people who don't have any role-playing experience before, they just want to buy a product, they open up, they, bought, they look at the product, they see hundreds of pages of rules, and they just give up. So the, the, the question basically is, how do you uh, deal with the problem that many rule sets are super complicated and it's hard for new people to get involved with them? And the answer is, uh, my self-serving answer is give them a hill folk, give them drama system, which has basically four or five rules and a really simple dynamic and allows people to, to jump right in if they are uh, intimidated by a lot of rules. However, if, for example, you are uh, uh, 12 to 14 and have a lot of time on your hands, uh, actually a giant rule book full of numbers that precisely define the world in a way that you can master is something that you're looking at. So it's not a universal problem of uh, beginning role players that they are put off by <coughs> giant uh, complicated rule sets. Some people really like that. So you want to uh, basically find out what it is about your prospective person who's maybe interested in gaming uh, and because uh, there's a solution for every potential newbies barrier to, to entry. Yeah, there are, there are role-playing games that fit on one side of a piece of card, right? They can play Rises, they can play any number of really good role-playing games. Over the Edge, the basic Over the Edge system is super short. Uh, Fear itself is crazy short and crazy exciting and evocative and everyone's seen a slasher movie. So that sort of you know puts them right into the, into the spot where they know what's going on. I would say that, uh, yeah, for almost any page length you can think of, there is a rule set that is that page length. And so don't say, oh, no one ever wants to play long games because guess what? The most popular two games in the country, in the world, are both long, crazily ornate, nonsense rule sets. Pathfinder and D&D do not sell in spite of their length and complexity. They sell because of their length and complexity. So I, I, would, I would doubt your premise, but then if you've got a specific It's not his person, premise. It's a rant he heard it's on, a rant he heard some, on other some other podcast. <laughs> other podcasts as it. <laughs> but I would say yeah I mean figure out what your or your uh, uh, theoretical newbie's perspective interest level is find the game that's that long start playing hi guys um, why are there not more good Cold War spy espionage goblin games well there's not very many good of any kind of games Right. Um, oh, I'm sorry. You're, we're gonna. We should recite the question. We're trying to restate the questions. We may or may not be picking up uh, the audio, so I'm, yeah. I'm either implicitly or explicitly restating the questions when possible. Um, so, the, in this case, uh, why aren't there more good Cold War uh, spy role-playing games? Uh, and um, my initial answers would be: We're not currently in the Cold War. It's uh, old history to most people, um, and you have to add a nerd element to that trope in order to sell it to gamers. For example, so if you're going to do a spy game, you would uh, have a couple of thoughts. You'd say, I really love the Cold War, but people today want the current world. 
and I need a neurotrope element. So you'd have a, you'd maybe think of an espionage game where the uh, opponents are vampires, and you'd move it up to the current day. What would you think about that, Ken? I think that could work. I mean, I can see a couple of ways. Obviously, what you'd want to do is turn it over to someone who's a, uh, a proven creator, someone with a deep understanding of both tradecraft and uh, Lovecraft, ideally. So, right. someone, someone who's obsessed with the Cold War, but also up-to-date on current events. Absolutely, yeah. And you could probably find someone like that, someone around, maybe on your favorite podcast. But, um, yeah, Robin is right that historical games are a, are a hard sell anyway. I think that uh, spy games are hard to build correctly. Um, even spy games that people really, really like, uh, things like uh, uh, the 007 game. That's a 007 movie emulator game. That's not a spy game. Knights Black Agents is a born movie emulator game. It's, it can be played as a spy game because it's thick enough and rich enough and has enough potential ways to play it that you can pull it down to a sort of a le carré uh, uh, spy story. But since actual spycraft is as exciting as filing and lying to people, uh, most people prefer to play games based on spy fiction. And so... I would say that uh, the fact that the fundamental activity being done is really, really tedious uh, and crazy-making because you never know if you win um, is uh, until 1989 when you find out um, <laughs> is, is one of the reasons that you, you don't see a, a proper uh, a spy game coming out. But also, given that it's a niche of a niche and that there aren't that many good games anyway, I think it's just luck of the draw. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. Uh, another question. Uh, so, uh, if you wanna, in a world where you can only kind of get your gaming group together for say a couple of hours uh, every couple of months or so, is, is there any, any tips or tricks to actually kind of make the most of that session, rather than to feel like you're in a, a very condensed form of what ideally would have been a whole weekend? Uh, so the question is how best to uh, design play for a role-playing situation where you have uh, two hours with your group uh, every month or so. Um, and so I guess the first thing that I would suggest is start as far into the story as possible and uh, prep with uh, email contacts so that uh, you know everybody agree 
uh, you sort of present them uh, via email or chat or whatever uh, beforehand. Here's the premise of the adventure. Here's uh, what the first hour of play would kind of look like in a stand if we were just if we had a whole weekend, but instead, I want you all to get together and agree how far into this trouble are you willing to start and so uh, it 's like okay, uh, everybody sits down and you 're on the burning uh, spaceship as it circles into the sun, and you already know the backstory of why you 're in that situation, so basically start at the act. Uh, at an act break, so instead of starting at the beginning of the story. And I would say also, if you're talking two hours a month, you're not going to be able to get a lot out of continuing stories. So what I would say is, if you've got the notion that you're going to have continuing characters, make sure that you can tell a brief episode in their lives that they can then uh, go on with their lives and have another brief episode without necessarily hooking things up. You're not going to have the advantages of continuity, you're not going to have the advantages of emotional depth and intellectual immersion, uh, you're really going to have to front load the action and keep the action piled on. So uh, an investigative game where it's all super heavy, who is the murderer, that's not going to help. You, you find out who the murderer is. The murderer is the butler. The butler has turned into a giant bug man. What now? Uh, and maybe you do a thing where um, you have 15 minutes to solve the murder in real time uh, until Lord Devonez dies. And then it's like, okay. And then you figure out whoever it is, or the GM waits for you to agree in 15 minutes and then says, and he turns into a bug man, and now you have a bug man fight. But your stories have to be super compressed. Two hours is no time at all. So I would say make sure that your story has one action beat or one action beat and one other beat, and then you're done, right? That's, right. that's a two-hour story. Basically, you can condense any typical four-hour role-playing session into about two hours by taking out the part where they endlessly discuss what they're going to do next. Um, so uh, basically you say, you, uh, uh, you have a stopwatch, and it's like, you've got 60 seconds to decide, argue it all out, and at the end of that time, if you don't have a consensus, I'm going to tell you what I think your consensus is based on who made the best argument. And so after that 60 seconds, or 90, let's be generous, 90 seconds, uh, you say, okay, well, obviously in the situation, uh, Baron von Krem would have convinced the rest of you to go assault the castle because he made the best argument. And you as players aren't ready to agree to that, but your characters are, go. You're attacking the castle. Uh, is there a plan to either do a sequel or companion time before having its hit points? Uh, the uh, question is, is there a plan to do a sequel to Hamlet's hit points? Uh, I have discussed with that game playwright the idea of taking the principles of Hamlet's hit points and making a basic how-to-write-fiction guide out of them. Uh, but that is what has happened so far. We have talked about it uh, because we're all super busy. After the unremitting and Cthulhu and vampires and Isaac Newton, what's next for horror? You mean in, uh, or the, what's next for horror, asks what's someone. What's going to scare us next? Okay. What's going to scare us next as players? What's going to scare us next in uh, the world? Steve, give us a little more to bite on. In games. In games. What's the next scary thing in games? Well, it's obviously whatever Robin or I do next. I mean, that's <laughs> right. simple logic. I mean, I'm going back to the Cthulhu mythos, so the 60s, I guess, will be what scares us next. Uh, well, I think in, in broader horror, we're going to start seeing uh, what I'm already exploring in the Esoteris, which is the... Uh, I think our predominant fear is the fear of madness that we seem now, you know, even more so than, uh, you know, the, the Al-Qaeda phase of terrorism uh, now seems uh, kind of quaint and sensible compared to the latest wave of uh, what is happening uh, with 
you know, all of a sudden uh, terrorism and workplace shootings are melding into one and it's like you get angry at work so you go and get your wife in tactical gear and the two of you leave the baby with your grandma and then go and kill a ton of people and uh, uh, you, uh, you die in a blaze of glory. That's just uh, a, a new level of social madness where uh, I think that the ways that we communicate with each other online are sort of uh, filtering into uh, deviant and violent behavior and so I think we're going to see a lot more social breakdown horror in the, in the media as a result of uh, the way uh, these sort of behaviors are all kind of metastasizing into something that kind of transcends uh, explicable politics and, and enters a, a new spiral into craziness. I think also that we are going to be seeing explicit horror of poor choices, right? Um, I think that we've got uh, superheroes and Star Wars are going to dominate what nerds are thinking about for the next 10 years. So it's all about people who have these great huge amounts of power and make dumb decisions with it. And so the consequences of dumb decisions, whether that be something that the universe made and then you have to live with it, or where you are the uh, character that makes the horrible decision and then horrible things happen to you as, as a result of that, that so then that might be interpreted as vampires or it might be interpreted as some other kind of monster, but it's going to be the horror of screwing up, of making a decision without all the facts or with a fluid situation that screws you up. So it's going to be, uh, you know, it'll have a political resonance, obviously, but it'll also come down to the individual, oh, man, because I did this, did I neglect my kid? Because I did this, did I, uh, you know, eat the kind of tuna that will kill all the sea life, whatever. The, the whole, I'm making choices every day and I don't know if they're the right ones is an ongoing sort of social pressure. And I think that's going to come squirting out because so much of our nerd entertainment is about being powerful enough not to care what happens. I think we have time for one last question. Uh, the podcast's been going for a long time now. How will we know when Ken and Robbins jump the shark? <laughs> we bring on a, um, a scrappy teen sidekick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but if it's Ken and Robin and uh, Sparky, then that will probably be too much. Yeah, so, uh, well, well, we title the podcast Ken and Robin Jump the Shark. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll, well, obviously, we'll, we'll let you know. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll right. clearly label that. Yes. Um, and Debbie and Sparky talk about what Ken and Robin Jump the Shark. Yeah. Uh, so, for the listeners at home, uh, this is the last episode that will uh, drop uh, in December. We'll take a brief uh, break for the holidays. We'll be back the first Friday of January, undoubtedly with a book haul and perhaps an extended report on a special mission that we're undertaking in London. Yes, uh, yes as we rub our hands together in anticipation. <laughs> so uh, uh, you here at uh, Dragon Meat, please uh, join us in uh, wishing a uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays to our listeners. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Happy Holidays! Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hellgrain Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Convince us to support your preferred brown sauce by hitting the donate button at KennethRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Watch out for our Patreon coming in the new year. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Hype. And he's at Robin D. Laws. Next time, when once again, we will talk about stuff.